I know what you're thinking. Wow, I can't wait to hear what Alex does with the tax collectors and the prostitutes entering before him. But I've already committed to working through Philippians, so I'm going to let you have that conversation over your lunch today and, uh, and report back to me what you guys talk about. So we'll, have to come, we'll have to circle back to that passage another time. So I do want to continue with our looking at uh, Philippians today. And let me just say, this is really the heart of the letter to the Philippians. This is the very, very heart of what Paul wants to say to the Philippians. Remember last week, he was talking about his joy that's in the Lord, that's focused on the Lord, even to the point where whether he dies or lives, he knows that his joy will be even greater because he's focused. The joy of the Lord is the center of who Paul is and, and that's what he aspires for the people of Philippi as he writes to them. Today we want to continue on with that. But, this time, but th- today, Paul, uh, in the lesson that picks up with verse 27, I appreciate Elena being willing to read from, pick up from where we left off last week and move forward. So if you're looking at the digital bulletin, you see that we actually started with uh, chapter 2, verse 1. But it's really important that you go back to, to verse 27 to understand the context of what Paul is saying there. Now, Paul makes the key point in the very first verse, verse 27 there, that he'll then unpack for the rest of the verses that we have. And basically, Paul says, live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. I don't know about you, but that that sort of is like clear, and I get it, and yet at the same time, it's sort of like Man, Paul, that's, that's really tough to do. Well, let me give you a little bit of background. The colony of Philippi was uh, established and made uh, sort of a colony of, the, of Rome, actually, back in like 42 B.C. Um, Caesar Augustus had a big battle there and before he was Caesar Augustus, when he was Octavian. And so he, uh, he was so impressed on the plains of Philippi and he was so impressed with the people that he granted them citizenships and he made them a colony of Rome. So even though they were 800 miles from Rome, they became a very strategic point. They, they connected Rome to Asia Minor and, and Octavius, Octavian, who became Augustus, said, this is the key place and you have served me well and so you will be all Roman citizens. And so there was a sense in which that was a big part of the identity of Philippi. They believed themselves to be Roman citizens, a colony of Rome, although they were very, very far away. If you've ever um, been in a situation, there are other historical uh, references you might make to, to little little colonies of other cultures that were kind of planted in among a foreign people. And, and that's sort of the way the, the Philippians felt, felt, thought of themselves. Paul draws upon that to encourage them to not only see themselves as in a, in a secular sense, in a, in a worldly sense, to be a colony of Rome, but he wants them to also see themselves as a colony of the kingdom of heaven, to be God's people uniquely placed there in Philippi. And, and so he wants them to be a colony of, of God's heavenly realm placed there and to walk in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, the worthy of that calling. And Paul says, this is what I want us, I ask that you begin to exemplify, that, that, that you're, we walk in one spirit, that you walk in one mind 
and that you strive side by side. I appreciate David letting me put that gradual song in there because it so focuses on this, this sense of being one and our unity in Christ. Something that, as North Americans, we have a really hard time understanding. We are so independent. We are so individualistically minded. But to see that we're called in Christ to be in unity with our brothers and sisters who are in Christ. Now, before you get off on one mind, this is not sort of an occultish kind of a thing where you have to all be in lockstep with what you believe. Paul is not saying have one mind, some sort of mind meld. What Paul is saying is have the same mindset. Let this be your mindset that you want to see the advancement of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, which, of course, Paul gives us the good news of Jesus in in Philippians chapter 2 when he gets into that great hymn of the church. But be in one spirit, in one mind, and, and be walking side by side. When I, when I began to think about and meditate on that scripture this week, I began to think about um, our mission trip to Nicaragua years ago now. Uh, it was a clean water project that we went on. Tracy Lacanina and Bella was there as well as a lot of other folks. And, and the neat thing about this project was that we were, we, were digging, we were digging water lines. Now, that wasn't the neat part. That was exhausting work. Imagine digging all the water lines for a small village. That's what we did. We were taking, we, were, we put a pump in, or the engineers that were with us put a pump in, and we were actually running the, the PVC pipe to all the, the little, um, all the residents in this little village, and we were bringing them clean water. An amazing thing to see um, that accomplished. But what, what I recall is being in these trenches. They were about four feet deep and about two foot wide. And um, the dirt in Nicaragua is not easy to dig in. It's, it's a, it was a task. And we were working alongside Nicaraguans. And, of course, I don't speak very much Spanish. And most of them didn't speak any English. But there was a sense of the fact that we were working with the same goal, that we, we knew wherever we were, you kind of knew the next house on the line where you were taking those, those PBC pipes to. And so we were working together. We had one common goal, and we were working side by side. And it was just the neatest the sense of working shoulder to shoulder with, with these Nicaraguans. Now, they could work so much harder than we could. I mean, even our, our best man... Uh, was 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 challenged by the the ability for these Nic- with these Nicaraguans to work side by side, but we were seeing this one goal accomplished, and there was such a sense of unity. And Paul is drawing upon that same idea. He wants to see these Philippian Christians, this colony of heaven, to be working side by side, to be in one spirit and in one mind. It's a lofty goal. It's a it's an audacious goal to, to think about us being in that sort of a, a same mindset that this is what we're about and we're accomplishing. Paul then goes on to say there are two obstacles on that. The first obstacle is verse 28. He talks about the opponents. Now, he hasn't said much about it, and Paul really doesn't give us a lot of detail in the letter of Philippians. We don't really know what it is that they're facing, but, but there is some sense in which Paul says it is like the kind of conflict that I'm facing. So what, what do we know about Paul's conflict? Well, we know he's in Rome. We know that there are those, remember I said last week, there are those who are talking about Jesus, but not out of a pure heart, but out of a desire to see Paul further inf- afflicted as he's in jail. I don't exactly know what that means. Somehow, you know, by talking about Jesus, kind of stirring up the issue of Jesus, they hope to bring greater pain and suffering on Paul, who, of course, remember, is in, is in house arrest. But 
they they were they were dis, they were working against Paul. Um, they were uh, dissenters. They were, and, and so, so Paul is suggesting that there are these opponents in Philippi that are actively working to try to undermine the Christian community that's in Philippi. Paul says that's a huge thing, but here, here's, the, here's the deal, Paul says. If, if those opponents, by your willingness to continue steadfast, one spirit, one mindset, working side by side, you're giving testimony of their defeat and your victory in Christ. Your unity will display that ultimately they will be destroyed. You know, it's like that, you know, it's, 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 that, it's that mindset that says, you know, you may, you may knock me down, but we Christians are going to be here, you know, when, when whatever comes next, we're going to be around. C.K. Chesterton once said, you know, the, I believe it was C.K. Chesterton said that, that, that the anvil of, of time has beat upon, or the, the hammer of time has beat upon the anvil of the church over and over and over, and yet the church prevails. It's still here. We're still here. We're still worshiping God. We're still proclaiming the gospel. Paul says, the, the fact that you're working together, that you're being the church together, is evidence to your opponents that they will ultimately defeat it, but that you will know the victory that's in Christ. But Paul says that's not the most important of the obstacles. We think the opponents out there, we think those things which threaten the church are our greatest enemy. Paul makes it clear in this passage that it is not the outside forces that are our greatest threat. As a matter of fact, there's some sense in which when the church is persecuted, it actually, it, it, it moves forward in the in most dramatic ways, in powerful ways. Paul says the greatest obstacle, rather, is the conflict that is going on within you. Well, how do you, how do you get that, Alex? Because Paul didn't actually say those words. No, Paul doesn't actually say those words, but he denotes ink, to the second issue, not to the first. He, he, he hits the first with the opponents, but then quickly moves on to the second. And, and, and then Paul almost becomes like a, like a preacher. The problem with this passage and with Philippians is Paul is writing some really long sentences here. Your English teacher would say, Paul, you need to break that up into three sentences. Quit making. But Paul didn't abide by any English, you know, any grammar lessons or whatever. Paul writes these incredibly long sentences. And Paul launches into another one of those sentences in verse 1 of chapter 2. So, if there is any encouragement in, in Christ, any comfort in love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, any sympathy... Paul, it's almost like, you know, uh, the, the preaching style where you just sort of, you know, one sentence after another or one phrase after another. I, I don't do that very well, but, um, but, but you know some preachers that do. And Paul's sort of like that. He kind of gets going on here. But Paul says, if there's any of those things, then complete my joy. Complete my joy by how? Well, he goes on to say, By being of one mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, he says it twice. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Paul says, you will complete my joy 
if you deal with the conflict that's going on within, within you, what's going on? Well, there's selfish ambition. There's conceit. There are those who look only to their own interests. Last week when I was talking about joy and differentiate between joy and sort of happiness, the kind of a uh, sort of a popular idea of happiness. Happiness, I didn't define it, but happiness is, uh, one person has said, happiness is controlling your life in such a way that you maximize positive outcomes. So you take control of it and you try to set it up so that you have positive outcomes as much as possible. Paul says, our joy, if it's in the Lord, doesn't make that as the ultimate goal you can have selfish, selfish ambition about even good and godly things. You can be conceited in your attitude and your actions. You can look only to your own interests. And he doesn't say it's not good to look to your own interests, but he says not only to your own interests. Paul go on to say in verse 14 that, that there's murmurings and there's disputings. Bickering would be a better way of putting it between them. And Paul says, these things are going on and this is the greatest threat to your spiritual lives in Philippi. And I got to tell you, as I, as I read those words from Paul, I recognize the application in our own day and time. Not from opponents from without, but from within. Our bickering and disputing, our selfish ambition at times, our conceit, and our looking only to the needs of ourselves become huge, huge problems in the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century, especially in this place and time. Now, I don't mean particularly servants of Christ perish, although we're not immune from it, but in the church at large. Paul is speaking to us, make no mistake, just as he speaks to the Philippians. What's Paul's solution? Well, last week we talked about joy. Paul says the solution is humility. The solution is humility, which Paul defines by these two ideas. First of all, looking also for the needs of others and counting others more significant than yourselves. Humility was not treasured or valued in the first century. The Greco-Roman culture did not value. They actually thought it was a character flaw to be humble. Maybe you were raised in a household where that was the, was the opinion too, or may, raised in a subculture within the States where you were told never to be humble, but to be, you know, to take credit for your, yourself and, um, and to get yours. Paul calls the Philippians to remember humility. It may be the most uniquely Christian of all moral values, to humble ourselves, to not think only of our own interests, and to count others more than yourselves. Think in your mind, think about somebody that you know who exemplifies great humility. If you're like me, it may take you a few minutes because truly humble people don't stand out as much, do they? We can think of some great people, but can we think of some truly humble people? 
I had to meditate on it a while. I had to sort of spend some time with it. And I'm not going to throw out a name to you. You wouldn't know them anyway. But, but they were people for whom these things were true. They, they truly did care about the interests of others as much as their own interests. And they truly did see the other people as more significant than themselves. And they operated out of it and made huge impacts on the world around them. Paul says humility is key. Now, why is it that Paul says that that will complete his joy? Because last week I told you that Paul says that his joy is in the Lord. His, his joy is centered in Christ. Why is it then now Paul says my joy will be completed if you learn to walk in humility with one another and deal with these inner conflicts? Well, it's because for Paul to see us as believers walking in humility with one another is to actually exemplify the nature of in the person of Jesus Christ, which means that we're actually proclaiming the gospel in our lives. We're acting Christ-like in that moment. And so even though his joy is fulfilled in what we do rather than what Jesus has done, it's because we're now reflecting Jesus in our lives. We're learning to truly love our neighbor as ourselves. And so Paul turns to to this amazing hymn of the church, Philippians 5, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, and he begins to talk about Jesus. And notice that as he describes Jesus in the first couple of verses, 5 through 8, the key there is Jesus' humility. He didn't consider equality with God to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. Why do we call ourselves servants of Christ? Because for some idiotic reason, we want to try to emulate our Lord who served rather than being served. Sometimes I go, man, why don't we pick an easier title for this church? It could be Christ Church or, you know, Friends of Jesus Church or, you know. But we didn't. We picked Servants of Christ. And it's because of this very thing that, that Christ calls us to walk in his way and to see his Example of humility. Now, Jesus is more than an example of humility for us, obviously, right? The, we, we know, we talked about it last week, We've, we talk about it all the time. Jesus is our atonement. He gave his life on the cross, not just an example, but as, as, a, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is he is the one who turns away God's wrath and has, rest- and has restored us with forgiveness and new life in himself. But in this particular context, Paul wants us to see that Jesus is not only our atonement, but that he, in fact, becomes our example. He is modeling for us what we are to be, and that is humility. And when we walk in that humility... When we don't disconsider our own needs, but we consider the needs of others, when we consider others more significant than ourselves, we actually proclaim the gospel not only with our lips, but in our lives. Much harder to do. Easier to preach Jesus than to live Jesus. And yet Paul says, when we do this, when we walk in this humility, it proclaims the gospel to the world. Now, 
Note that Paul is not talking about the world. Paul is talking about the church. The disputes, the murmurings, the bickerings, the selfish ambition, the conceit, the looking only for your own needs. These are all things that are present in the church of Philippi. And they're present in the church of Jesus Christ in the year 2020. The Lord is calling us to examine our lives. That's why Paul will say after the great hymn, he'll say, Paul will say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That, that's not, that doesn't mean go figure out your own idea of God and salvation. Paul's saying, what I'm calling you to, you need to work out with fear and trembling. It's super hard to do, but this is the call of Christ to put others above ourselves, to consider them more significant than ourselves. To see our relationship with them is important. Christians should never be divided over issues. Ultimately, we, we can have disagreements. We can, we can say, agree to disagree, and we'll never be able to come to terms. You see it this way, I see it that way. But Christians should never become divided over issues. Because in our call to follow Christ, we are called to, to emulate Christ's own Life, which is a life of humility and laying ourselves down. I don't know who it is that you need to repent to or repent of, but there is a place surely in all of our lives where we have not considered the needs of others. And there is definitely places where we've not considered others more significant than ourselves. One of the reasons I wanted to use that book um, by Alan Jacobs, the How to Think book, is just to sort of, I think he puts in perspective, I mean, to, to lose a relationship over an issue. I think it brings heartbreak to the, to the heart of God. I mean, I, I really do. I, I think it, it, issues are important. I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize them, but, but our love and our witness for Christ as we Disagree and yet live and love together is so essential for our own spiritual growth as well as our witness to the world. And that's exactly what Paul says in Philippians 2. When I, when I step back for a second and my amazing wife, Jody, uh, helped bring this out to me this week. We were, we were actually having coffee on Saturday morning and she, I was telling her what I was thinking about preaching and she was giving me input and, and she said, you know, the recognizing the needs of others, I want to quote her because I, I mean, I don't, I don't have the exact quote here, but the idea is that, that the reality is the needs right now of others, that, that there are people who are really depressed. They are really struggling. They are fearful. They're anxious. Whether you think those are justifiable or not is insignificant. When it comes to you understanding and me understanding the needs of others, and if those folks are in pain, then I should care about that. So I'm thankful for her saying that. Friends, we're talking about loving each other, loving our neighbor as ourselves. And it's just like, you know, if you have siblings, your siblings are how God 
socializes you, right? He, he, he teaches you how to be civil by, you know, as you beat your sister up or whatever, or she beats you up. That was sometimes the case in my family. Um, you, you learn how to love your neighbor by learning to love your sister or your brother. Well, the family of God is that same way. It's just we're a more extended family. And at times we, we treat each other wrong. We, we beat each other up. But the Lord uses it. Better to beat your sister up than a stranger, right? I guess. Don't quote me on that. Too late, right? Someone has said, and, and I'm not exactly sure where to give this credit to, but someone has said, love begins when someone else's needs are more important than my own. It's humility it's, it's submission of myself because Christ was willing to submit himself for me. It's valuing the community over my individual needs or wants. It's the way of Christ, and it is challenging, but we're not abandoned. Notice the last thing that Paul says he finishes the hymn. He tells them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. But he says, but for it is, verse 13, but for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. This is not work harder Christianity. This is submission to the Lord and understanding that this is the Lord who wants to will and to do his good pleasure in us. That we may know his joy more fully and that we might proclaim that joy to the world. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.